0: Hallelujah. Christ has risen. I feel like saying it every Sunday. It's just <laughs> awesome to sing about Christ's resurrection from the dead. And it's what gives us hope, doesn't it? It's what makes our day. It makes everything wonderful. Uh don't you love Mother's Day? I love Mother's Day, you know. And uh you know, I I think it's just awesome. Uh and so happy Mother's Day to all of you again. Um, like I mentioned before, I have this, this awesome mother. And my mother-in-law was incredible. And I miss her dearly, and I know my wife misses her terribly on a day like today. But we also rejoice in the fact that we had her uh, blessing and her love and her grace in our lives. And uh, as I mentioned, my wife, uh, the, the mother of my children, is an awesome mother. And so for me... <laughs> for me, Mother's Day is associated with positive thoughts, with encouraging words, endearing memories, and just all-around cheeriness. It's just a wonderful day. But the message I was working on earlier this week was none of those things. <laughs> and when, I, when Jennifer said mentioned to me, you remember it's Mother's Day, when she heard my topic, I went, oh, oh, I can't preach that on Mother's Day. <laughs> so i went back to the word and asked god you know what do i preach on mother's day you know and thinking all these cheery thoughts and god kept pushing me back to that same message and i kept going no no, no you can't preach that on mother's day uh and and it kept coming back over and over and, fi- and finally i was like okay well i guess i'll preach on it told jennifer i'll preach on it and then uh, early this morning, like before my alarm clocks went off, before it was even remotely light out, I woke up and went, I can't preach that sermon today. I got to go find something else. I hop on a bed and go work on something else. Because I just, and when I went downstairs and started working on something else, the Lord just gave me the same message again. ha." <sighs> So now I have to preach this message, (laughs) so brace yourself. It's not cheery. It's not happy. I don't know who this message is for, but I believe there must be somebody in this congregation that's listening that this message is from God to you because he just kept impressing it upon my heart that it had to be given. And so, I'm sorry, it's not a cheery, upbeat message. It's not not a typical Mother's Day message at all. But I do believe God has called me to share this message. And I pray that it's heart-wrenching reality. God will speak to us and meet us in the terrible places of our lives. Jesus said he would never leave us nor forsake us, didn't he? But I think that that promise means so much more to the people in the dark places of their life than any of the people in the the triumphs of their life. Christ's nearness is found in the brokenness. And he says, "I was broken." You know, we we have this very weird symbol for Christianity. It's an object of torture. It's an object of kill, for killing people. It's like having a guillotine as your, your, your symbol. It's like horrific. And yet, that's because that's where Jesus meets us when we're experiencing the same thing he went through. Maybe not crucifixion on the cross, but maybe some other kind of crucifixion, maybe some other kind of horror. And Jesus meets us there, not... In the high points. And so I'd like to introduce you to a mother that epitomizes the millions of mothers around this world who've gone through the same thing as she's gone through. They're trapped in similar circumstances that have only brought pain and suffering and despair. But this woman found something else in the bottom of the pit of despair. She found something else. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, we'll also have it up on the screen, but I think it's nice to have the whole chapter before you. Um, this story, it takes place in the middle of Abraham and, and Sarah's life, uh, actually at, at the kind of near the end, end of their lives, actually, um, but it starts with now Sarai. Abraham's wife had borne him no children. Now, this is sort of like an understatement, okay? It's not that she just hasn't borne him any children. She is long past the childbearing age. She's now 75 years old. And, uh, you know, there's no chance that she's going to... She's barren. But they say it kind of nicely. Bore him no children, you know? Um, So... I'm sure that Abraham told Sarah repeatedly how God had told him that he was going to be the father of many nations. And so it seems seems Sarah concocts this plan to solve this little difficulty. If God says you're going to be the father of many nations... Then I guess we're going to have to come up with a plan to fulfill God's plan because you know this plan of being married to me ain't working <laughs> you know it's not producing any children. And so um, Sarah it says had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And now this this word translated slave here it's a sherfka in Hebrew. And the brown driver, Drig, Briggs, which is a lexicon that I like to use, suggests that the, the translation is maid or maid servant or slave girl. So I've changed the NIV to just read slave girl for a moment because I, I feel like that better puts this thing into perspective. Anyways, Sarai Sarah says to Abram, uh, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave girl and perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, shefka, that word for slave girl, emphasizes the, uh, the, the femininity of the slave, but it doesn't really emphasize the age of the slave so much. But it's clear from this story that this is a slave who is of childbearing age and uh, that they're hoping to have a child. through this. So, so, so this is likely uh, a girl between the ages of 15 and 35, somewhere in, I know it's a big, Big space, but she's not really. You know, I don't think her her idea of marriage is marrying this 85-year-old guy. It's probably not what she's dreaming about. It's probably not what she wants. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, so this girl is surely less than half of Sarah's age and abraham agreed with what sarai said and so after abraham had been living in canaan 10 years sarai took her egyptian slave girl hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife notice this word took took her you know this word is 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 loki in the hebrew and it, it it depicts someone taking a hold of, or seizing, or or, or snatching something, or to take it away. It, this is this is just Sarai doing this on her own. Hagar had no say in this. She just grabs her servant girl and takes her and says, "Okay, now you, know, you got to marry my husband." And give, and notice the next word, gave her to her husband to be his wife. This is the very definition of a forced marriage, what we see here in the Bible to one of our highest honored patriarchs in Christianity. Is that a forced marriage? Let's let's call it what it is. That's what it is. She's treated like a commodity. She has no say in the matter. She's, you know, they say, well, we're going to take her and give her and, and it's like, it's like they're talking about a piece of furniture, you know, like, um, <laughs> it's just not right. And so then it says the next thing, verse 4, he slept with her and she conceived. Very one, one liner. But that one liner in Hagar's life, I don't know what it really means. You know, we don't, we don't even hear what Hagar has to say about this. Her thoughts on the subject don't enter in the picture we have abraham's thoughts we have sarah's thoughts we even have god's thoughts but her thoughts just don't seem to count just well she's a slave and they're not even recorded was this sex between two consenting adults we don't even know was this something much more sinister we don't know but as the story unfolds it's clear that she never really received the rights as a wife. She was still, in everyone's eyes, just a slave girl, used to produce offspring. And that's all her master and mistress thought of her, a commodity to be used. And I don't know about you, but this is a pretty dark blot in the founder of three major world religions. Uh, and I look at it from the 21st century point of view, and it I know I'm culturally miles apart from this situation, but, you know, abuse and misuse of humans is still abuse and misuse of humans, no matter what culture it's in, no matter how culturally okay it is. It's still abuse. And it's a sickening reality to me. Look at the next verse. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Ah, now she's... You know, Abraham's wife, she, you know, she's pregnant. (laughs) Sarah couldn't get pregnant. (laughs) I'm going to be the favored wife now. I'm going to be the one that gets heaped on with praise and everything. It's going to go well for me now. it doesn't go so well. Hagar thinks she has the rights of Abraham's wife. Gets a little haughty about it. But look what happens. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows knows she's pregnant? She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. She was mad at her husband for this plan she concocted. (laughs) Uh, But look what Abraham says. Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. So much for the rights of a a wife. Notice what they call her. She says, I put my, she's still the slave girl. She might be married to the master of the house, but she's still the slave girl. And they still refer to her as the slave. And Sarah says, I put her in your arms. And Abraham says, okay, I put her back in your hands. There's just, they're talking about her, like like I said, like she's a piece of furniture. It's like, oh, you don't like that? Well, do with it whatever you want. You know, throw it away, give it away, uh, discard it, burn it, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's no care, no concern, nothing. It's shocking. <laughs> Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Forced marriage, but without the privileges of marriage. A screwed up family, hostility, rejection, then abuse. On top of that pregnancy, likely an unwanted pregnancy, now fleeing in the desert wasteland. This one confused, abused, pregnant, hurting young lady with nowhere else to turn, nowhere to go. The very definition of helplessness. But look what the next verse says. Praise God for verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. They'll love this. Found Hagar. It wasn't like Hagar was crying out to God. It wasn't like she was looking for God, looking for meaning meaning or whatever. No, God came down, sent his angel, the angel of the Lord, which in this passage we'll find out that's actually refers to the Lord himself. The Lord himself comes down and ministers to her and finds her and comes and ministers to her. Uh, you know, that's what God does. Jesus likened it to a shepherd who's lost a sheep. And he leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after that one and looks and looks and looks until he finds that sheep. And then he carries it home and brings it back to the fold. That's what God does. God, Jesus says it's like a woman who's lost a coin. And she sweeps the whole house, straightens everything up looking for that coin. And then rejoices with her friends when she finds it. That's what God's like. Or Jesus says it's like like a son that goes astray. And when the son decides maybe to come back, the father tucks his coat into his belt and runs like a madman to hug and embrace his son and rejoice in his son coming back. This is what God is like. And this is God like that, like that New Testament God that Jesus talks about. We find him right here in the Old Testament looking after this broken down, thrown away, despised, upset, used child of his. And he comes along, and he brings comfort to her. But the comfort comes that a weird, it's weird. I'm telling you, I don't like this passage. He says to her, Hagar, slave of Sarah, Where have you come from, and where are you going? Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out a sec. It's one thing for Abraham and Sarah to call her slave. Now God's calling her slave of Sarah. Does this even make sense? First thing he says, Hagar, slave of Sarah. I mean, couldn't he just have said, husband of abraham or wife of abraham that would be a lot more cheery of greeting wouldn't you think a lot more positive but no he says slave of hagar why what's going on why dwell on the painful hold that thought for a second okay we're going to get back to it but i want to show you hagar's response at the end of this talk that she has with the angel of the lord um Hagar responds, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she says. And the angel of the Lord says to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Are you kidding me? Doesn't God see the injustice here? (laughs) Like, Doesn't God care? Is God as callous as Abraham and Sarah? What gives? Is God on, on the side of the oppressors, the slave owners, the abusers? What is going on here? Well, when we look at Hagar's response we get a clue to what is actually going on here you see after the angel of the Lord had spoken to her she gives the Lord a name now no one else in the entire Bible from beginning to the end gives God a name a name that sticks at at least maybe some blasphemed him but nobody gave him a name that stuck Hagar is the only person that gives God a name that sticks. And it's named in all the theological textbooks that I know of. The name she gives God is there in all those books. When you'll get a list of the names of God, it's always there. But it's from her. And she names him Elroy, which means uh, the Lord who sees me. Can you imagine this poor lady in the desert running away? And she finds that somebody sees her. So when God says, servant of Hagar, or servant of Sarah, God is not saying, oh, that's who you are. He's saying, I see what, where your pain is. I see who you are. You're the servant. You're, you're, you're being belittled. You're being treated with such uh Uh, indignity and God comes along and he says I see that and Hagar gets it that God sees who she really is her pain her frustration all that she is God sees that and today I want you to know that El Roy sees you Whatever your pain is, God sees you in that pain. And he loves you and he cares about you. And he might come along and talk about your pain to you. And I I want you to know in this story, God is not the victorious warrior. God is not the one who sets her free. God is not the one who comes and is the great rescuer. No, he's the God who sees And he looks into pain and he sees your pain, whatever it is. And so maybe if you're struggling today because of, you know, your mother wasn't kind to you or maybe she's gone or whatever, God looks into that, sees your pain. He sees where you are. And she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. And in some translations, there's this idea that she's she's surprised that she's still alive because she's seen the face of god and and still lives but he sees her in his distress in her distress and it says the angel added i will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count don't you love that that's the same promise he had given to abraham the man of righteousness At least that's what he's called in the Bible. (laughs) Sometimes you got to wonder. He did some really strange things. But God counted his faith as righteousness. The same way we're made righteous, Abraham was made righteous. And the angel said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. And you will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. Not only did God see her misery, not only did God see where she was at, God also heard her, mis- her misery. She must have cried out to God, and God heard. Do you know what Ishmael means? Ishmael, had the last part of the word, E-L, You know, does anyone know what that means? L. It's God, right? It means God. And the first part, Ishmael, and it's actually Yishmael, uh Yish- means hear's he listens, and so it's he listens god it it 's a God who listens basically and and uh it's it's just two words really and so that 's what she 's to to name her child when he 's born. Um, you know I think that people often feel like God is supposed to rescue them from all of their trouble. But I want you to know that we serve a savior who cried out, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has gone through that experience of not being rescued. He has gone through the experience of uh, of facing the terrible death and knowing it and asking to be relieved of it, asking for another way, and his father's saying, No, this is the only way. You got to go through it. And my friends, we are his followers, actually, when we go through the same thing. When we go through trials and tribulations and difficulties, and all the pearls of life, we then are following in the same footsteps. And, you know, I don't care what those prosperity preachers say. God does not always rescue us. And God allows us sometimes to go through and carry on in the in the terror. And actually Hagar was told to go back and submit to her mistress. And she does. And she goes back. And Abraham names her child Ishmael. She must have requested it from the Lord. And Abraham grants her that. But you know what? Her trials are not over. Oh, far from it. I mean, years go by, 13 years go by. Sarah has a child named, named uh, Laughter. What's his name? Isaac. <laughs> and Ishmael mocks him, makes fun of him. Or some translations say plays with him. I'm not quite sure what the translation of the word is exactly. But Sarah sees this and freaks out again. Says, get rid of this slave woman. Get rid of her daughter. She shall never have the inheritance with our son Isaac. It's this is a broken family, my friends. This is this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible paints uh, polygamy as a terrible thing. It's just terrible. It just destroys people. And and Abraham agrees. And he gives Hagar a a, a bottle of water and some bread and says, okay, see you later. He lives in a desert. How is she going to survive? And she goes out. And she she gets lost in the desert. And when the water in the water skin is gone, it says that she cast the child under one of the bushes. Now, I've always wondered about that verse because the guy's 14 years old now. I don't know how the mother casts him under a bush. But maybe he was faint. Maybe he made his mother drink all the the water. I don't know. But she puts him down under this bush. And then she goes about a bow shot away, about 100 yards away. And then she just cries her eyes out. She said, "Do do not let me look on the death of my child. She cries out to God. And she sat opposite him, lifted up her voice, and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel called Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened up her eyes. I love that. The God who sees her opens up her eyes and enables her to see that there's a spring nearby. And she is able to fill the skin with water. And they both survive. I don't want to sugarcoat this story. This is a tragic story. But I also want to point out that whenever Hagar was at the lowest of her lows, when she was running for her life, running away scared, when she was absolutely at her worst, what happened? She met God every time. Her encounters, her talks with God, her meeting God always happened at the bottom of the, the misery barrel. That's when God shows up. That's when God sees her. That's when God comforts her. That's when God opens her eyes. That's when God listens to her. I I honestly think that if our lives were absolutely blessed, we would rarely meet with God. It's in the turmoil that we meet with God and that God comes. And so, this Mother's Day, if you're misunderstood, oppressed, pushed down, distraught, there's one who sees the oppressed, one who sees and hears those who are distraught, one who invites you into a special circle of fellowship. And you know what that circle of fellowship is called? It's called fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Now I'm not one of those people who's ever had that kind of fellowship with Christ. Gone through some crises in my life. Actually, actually I have had some of that fellowship, but now, now I come to think of it. But most of my life has been blessed. But you know what? There are people whose lives just look like a tragedy story, and they have had this fellowship with Christ that is that is different than other people experience. They have fellowshiped in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, in First Peter, it says this, and we've been looking at this, and I told you I was going to preach on this next verse. Uh, do I have a next slide? I hope I do. No, next slide. Oh, there it is. Yeah, so Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and participate in his sufferings becoming like him in his death now I have to be honest with you my friends I I shy away from praying this prayer that Paul prays I, I find Christ's sufferings terrifying and although I respect and honor those who have gone through similar sufferings as Christ I don't I don't long for them that I would know them. I I just can't bring myself to that place. And so that's just a confession of your pastor. So don't feel bad if you also can't pray this prayer. But maybe God wants you to pray this prayer. Because there is a special, from this prayer and from other passages like it in the Bible, it is very, very clear that there is a special fellowship that is reserved for the suffering Jesus Christ and those who also go through suffering, particularly those who suffer for the name of Christ. They are welcomed into this inner circle of fellowship of the sufferings of Christ that many of us will never know the way they know it. Um, in uh, in first Peter Peter talks about the same thing he says this beloved do not I, I don't have any more slides sorry I, I ran out of time this morning <laughs> So, uh, beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange things were happening to you but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings you see that when we go through trials, we're partaking of the sufferings of Christ. We're included in a special fellowship. That, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding great joy. You know, today, in the, as we are singing the songs, I, I thought about this verse, and I thought about, yes... You know, those who participate in Christ's sufferings, they're going to rise exalted in Christ. They will get crowns that other people don't get. There will come a day when they will rejoice with Christ because they have suffered with him and will be raised with him. Um, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Isn't that an awesome thing? On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or as a busybody or other in other people's matters. Yes, if anyone suffers as a Christian, though, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. And therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator this is a challenging passage to actually recognize that suffering brings us into that fellowship of participating with christ and there are many verses like this peter first peter 2 verse 21 to 33 for to this you were called because christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin nor guile was found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges rightly. You might be suffering today, but there is a God who judges rightly and he will take up your case. And he will take up the case of all those who've been judged or who have suffered persecution in this world. You know, Jesus said, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If anyone loves their life, they will lose it. And if anyone who hates their life for this, in this world will keep it for eternity, whoever serves me must follow me. This is an interesting passage. Basically, it says, if you want to produce fruit as a Christian, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to somehow go through this process of dying. It's the only way to produce fruit. Jesus Christ himself produced fruit when he died on the cross, and he, he rescued all of mankind, and he, he's produced that fruit. And then he says, you know, if, Whoever serves me, will follow me. What is the most common thing Jesus said when he said to his disciples, follow me? What's the most common thing he said alongside that? Do you know what it is? Pick up your cross. <laughs> Pick up your cross and follow me. He says it over and over. John 10. Uh, when or, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16:24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. Mark 8:34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Luke 9:23. When he said to them, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me." You get the idea. Uh, Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. These are powerful words. For I consider what the sufferings of... This is what Paul says. This is a guy who's been stoned, shipwrecked, chased up from city to city, whipped three times. Uh, I mean, he's just been persecuted over and over and over. One time, they just left him for dead because everybody thought he was dead. They threw so many rocks at him. They just thought he was dead. This is what he says. For I considered that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Ooh. The fellowship with Christ and his sufferings is real. it is real. I've never experienced that to, it, to that extent, but honestly, I know that the suffering is real. There are people right here in this congregation who have had experiences like Hagar they have suffered like christ and they're right here amongst us heroes of the faith that we don't even know about and yet here they are they, they suffer a lot of times in silence so i'm going to close with a story of suffering for the sake of christ at the hands of boko haram it's a powerful story but it's also a horror story and it's more terrifying because it's real and it just keeps happening over and over to thousands and thousands of people. And it's the story of our Christian sisters in Northwest Africa. And you may not have the stomach for stories like this. And I just want to encourage you, if, if you don't have a story, when I read this, I've read it three times, and every time I bawled my eyes out. And I don't know if I can get through this story today. So if you don't have the stomach for that, It's fine. Just go out in the foyer for a while. Uh, I, no one's going to judge you. It's just one of those stories, okay? So, if, and Matt, if we could just turn off the feed to the foyer, that would be great. So it may not be a story for you or your kids. The last thing that 17-year-old Esther remembered on the day when her life crashed was her father's collapsed body. Laying on the ground. Before that October date, Esther and her father lived a pretty simple life. After her mother had passed away, she attended school, took care of her ailing father as best she could. But on October 2015, everything changed when an extremist, uh, an Islamic extremist group called Boko Haram. Now Boko Haram is translated non-Islamic. Education is a sin. That's what Boko Haram means. Anyways, these extremists came into her town, and when they first heard gunshots ringing out, followed by harrowing screams, Esther and her father ran to escape. But it was too late. The attackers had already surrounded their house, and the rebel militants struck down her father and left him in a heap on the ground. And Esther became a Boko Haram captive. As rebel fighters carried her off and several other young women in the town to their hideout in the Sambia forest, where, by the way, Boko Haram had taken thousands of women just like her, she continued to look back, her eyes fixed on her father's lifeless form on the ground. Esther doesn't know if he survived or died that day. She assumes the worst, but she doesn't really know till this day. And so started the unimaginable nightmare of her life. In the hands of Boko Haram, this nightmare was worse than Esther anything Esther could imagine. There in the Sambian forest, the terrorists employed diverse tactics to coerce the kidnapped girls, to renounce their faith in Christ, and to swear their, their allegiance to Allah, the Muslim God. When, enticed with privileges, when enticement with privileges didn't work, They quickly resorted to violence. Now, many of the girls could not resist this. It was just too much for them, and they agreed to renounce Christ and become Muslim and become married to these fighters. Esther also fought the extreme pressure. The militants found her beautiful, they wanted to marry her as their wives. However, Esther, like her namesake in the Bible, was determined not to give in. In her heart, she decided, if I perish, I perish, just like Esther said so long ago, but I will not become a Muslim. And her resolve was no doubt courageous, but it also wrecked dire consequences in her life. And when she was talking about this to people who were interviewing her, she was trying to hide the tears as they were running down her face. As she said, I cannot count how many men raped me. Every time they came back from their attacks, they would rape and defile us. Each passing day, she said, I hated myself more and more. I felt that God had forsaken me. There were times when I was so angry with him. Still, I could not get myself to renounce him. I found myself remembering his promise that he would never leave me nor forsake me. Eventually, Esther became pregnant who the father is, she has no idea. She says this, I had no idea how on earth I would ever be able to find love for this child, remembering how she felt when she learned how she was pregnant. In November of the next year, the Nigerian military rescued Esther and the other kidnapped girls in captivity. And Esther came back to her village, pregnant, pregnant, hoping to find support. Instead, many of the people in her community rejected and shunned the former captives, labeling her and the others as the Boko Haram women. Esther says the baby she thought she would never love is now her joy and laughter amid sadness. For Esther, this next unexpected wave of persecution she soon overshadowed her newfound freedom. They mocked me because I was pregnant, she said. Even my grandparents despised me and called me names. I cried many tears, I felt so lonely. And what broke my heart even more Was that they they refused to call my daughter Rebecca, which was her name. They only referred to her as Boko. (laughs) Providentially, Esther connected with the Christian ministry that her church recommended. It's by open doors, and they had trauma counseling for these girls. And so Esther and the other participants went there, and they poured out their pain and anguish at the foot of the cross. There they were encouraged to trust in God, knowing that God is willing and able to free them from the shame and anguish that they harbored as victims of sexual violence understanding the importance of surrendering their their lives and addressing their shame, the caregivers told the the participants to write down the burdens of their hearts on a piece of paper. She then asked them to pin the paper to the hand-carved wooden cross in the room. When I pinned that piece of paper to the cross, I felt like I was handing over all my sorrow to God, Esther says. And when the trainer later removed all the pieces of paper from the cross and burnt them into ashes i felt like my sorrow and shame disappeared never to come back again esther continued to receive trauma counseling and a year after her return to the village the people still struggled to accept esther and her daughter and there are reasons for that that i won't go into but they also noticed a change in this young teenage mother they noticed that she stood for something powerful, the powerful love of God that transforms and renews people. And Esther is able to say that she is peace with herself and what happened to her. People have noticed a change, she says. Some of those people who used to mock me now ask me my secret, and I tell them, I forgave my enemies and now trust god to take vengeance in his time today esther and rebecca live with their grandparents esther's grandparents christian charities are helping to provide for esther and with and rebecca's needs including with food aid and help care as she receives uh, from her family after hearing my story she said to the Christians, You did not despise me, but encouraged me and showed me love. Thank you so much. The child and the, young, that, the child that the young girl thought she never could love, she now loves deeply. And her biblical namesake, God worked miracles in both through Esther and her daughter. Rebecca has become my joy and laughter amid my sadness. Now, I don't want to glamorize suffering in any way, and there's no way that I could somehow find something positive in this story. It's just heart-wrenching. However, these persecuted Christians are all over the world. This is not just one isolated story. This is a story of thousands and thousands of girls in Nigeria and other countries around it. Who are suffered like this they 're suffering for Christ, but more than that they 're suffering with Christ, and he with them and i don 't pretend my paltry little setbacks in my life are anywhere <laughs> like along these lines, and i 'm certainly not as bold as Paul when he says, "I want to know Christ and his suffering, but to those who you have suffered violence, who have suffered sexual assault or dire persecution for your faith i believe that jesus keeps your your tears in his special little jar next to his heart and that jesus knows what you've gone through because he's gone through it too and whatever terror you've seen god has seen and god hears your heart's cry like he did hagar so long ago god says he's close to the brokenhearted So I'd like like us to find courage and power to overcome when we hear the resolve of this 17-year-old girl to live for Christ. I'd like us to pray for for those who are persecuted all over this world. I know it's not the mother's day message you wanted to hear but it's a message found in the heart of god god loves his people and he wants to send us to help them out so let's pray father we pray for esther as her life has not become suddenly rosy and sweet but lord she trusts in you and you rescued her from her oppressors and you've brought her into a new family and you've given her hope and lord she has shared in your sufferings and so father we pray for all of these young ladies who've shared in, in your sufferings in this horrible way and we ask lord that you would restore unto them the joy of their salvation lord that you would restore unto them life and hope and wholeness and well-being and all those things that you are, you alone are able to give lord for those in our church that have gone through horrible suffering lord we ask that you would you would by your divine mercy walk with them, show them that you see them, that you love them, that you care for them. Lord, we pray for the estimated twenty thousand of these uh captured people who are still in bondage, forced marriages, sex slavery, Lord, so many driven from their homes. Lord, we pray for an end to Boko Haram. Lord, we pray against this evil. We pray, Lord, that you would judge them according to your judgment and justice. And Father, we pray that you would rescue them. And Lord, I pray just that we would would find courage knowing that there are others who have gone through horrible things and that they've suffered with you. And Lord, help us to be courageous sufferers for the sake of Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.